Hello and welcome to High Key Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we continue our epic series on Alexander the Great with the introduction of a new series within the series focused on the military abilities of Alexander. This four-ish part series will focus on Alexander's generalship by analyzing not only the big battles at the Granitus, Issus, Mela, and the Hydaspes, but by also focusing on things like how fast he moved his troops, his inventiveness, uh, his variability, his administration, leadership, which I'm sort of defining as, you know, like how he's motivating his troops, nuances like that, intangible leadership qualities, I guess. And right now, you know, I'm sure this will evolve as I work on this and as things go, as the rubber meets the road here, as it were. But the plan is to do four parts, which will probably, hopefully, be four episodes. But if one or two of them end up being too long, I'm going to split them up. So this four-ish part series is what we're getting into now. The first episode, which you're listening to right this instant, will focus on the small battles and famous stories of Alexander doing things like setting a small force up the side of a supposedly unscalable mountain and appearing behind his enemy, or when he was fighting the Illyrians at the start of his campaigns to re-solidify the gains of his father and he used trickery to escape from being surrounded. Next episode, I'm going to be focusing on the famous sieges of Alexander's various campaigns. Particularly, I will be focusing on the Siege of Tyr, which I think was just really indicative of a lot of the winning qualities that Alexander had as a general, why the ancients remembered him so fondly, and why he's remembered as the great today. We will also cover the Siege of Gaza in some detail, and a few other sieges throughout the uh, campaigns that Alexander fights. Those Gaza and Tyr are the two big ones. Tyr is, like I mentioned, particularly incredible, but others will be touched upon as well. The third episode of the series will focus on his administration, the incredible distances he was able to cover in pretty staggeringly quick periods, things of that nature. This may be the fourth episode, and I'll include stories like when he marches through the desert, some of the more laudable leadership characteristics the stories give us about him. But I'm thinking I might move this to the fourth episode, and then we'll include an assessment overall of everything we've covered. But in general, this is going to be his battle prowess, his organization, his tactics, his strategy, things that weren't necessarily conclusively hit upon in earlier episodes. Now, going to say here on the record, before I you know do the full deep dive, the full crazy thing that's coming up, I already have obviously done part of it, but I do think, hot take coming in, that Alexander was a truly impressive battlefield commander, a truly impressive general, and that, you know, more importantly, not my opinion on here, here's what's important, we got figures like Hannibal, ever heard of him, Julius Caesar, notable guy, Napoleon, Patton, just off the top of my head, these guys all thought that Alexander was a great general as well. Given that Hannibal and Caesar at least probably had access to better sources than we do, I'm comfortable rocking with them. You know, real recognized, real as it were. And also, here's another thing that we got to remember, right? These generals, they're sort of like the defensive bats of their day. You know, defensive bats, they're cocky. You ask them who's the best. Doesn't matter if it's Eli Apple. He's saying he's the best, even though he's garbage. So the fact that we got Hannibal, we got Caesar saying that Alexander was the best, the greatest it seems noteworthy to me. I know there's a lot of propaganda going on. I know there's a lot of mythologizing going on. But I do still think that that adoration that he was able to earn to an extent 
testifies to his actual greatness in this realm. The fourth episode of the series may be the third we will see, which will, this is the one most likely to be broken up into two episodes or more. This is the episode we're going to be focusing on, the big battles, right? Granicus, not in there. We're going to be talking about the Battle of Issus, the Battle of Gardamella, Battle of the Hydaspes. To me, the most impressive of these is the Battle of the Hydaspes, but we'll get into that a lot more when we get there. So before we get into all that, before we get into the thick of things, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at High Podcast and to follow the show on Twitter at High Podcast. Because there, what are you going to do? You're going to learn what is Thomas reading? What's going on with the show? Is there a delay? No. You know, there's going to be memes. There's going to be a lot of good stuff. There's going to be words and whiskey content on there. It's going to be great. And then also what would be super cool is if you hopped on the podcast platform of your choice, wherever you're listening right now to this lovely show, drop those five-star ratings, drop those five-star reviews. Let people know about the show, you know, chirp everybody you got. Tell them, listen to IT Obsessed. You're going to learn about Elgin at the Great. And why do you want them to do that? I don't know. Here's a little ditty that occurred to me over the weekend while I was uh, deep in despair about preparing for this episode. I believe that this is the, the first... Now, this, this can't be true, right? But I believe, because I wasn't able to find any, that this is the first comprehensive thematic overview of Alexander the Great's life. Now, that makes sense. Alexander the Great was just a person. Biographies typically aren't arranged thematically. The thematic coverage of Alexander's life that I've found typically has focused on one to two elements of him and not the whole thing that we're striving to do here, which again makes sense. That's sort of how history is done. But still, I think this is a unique analysis of Alexander the Great and one that you're not likely to get elsewhere. So even if, you know, you got a historian, history buff in your life, they feel like they know everything about Alexander the Great, let them know. We got a unique take on it in this one. Plus, let them know, you know, your guy, me, funny, charming, winning, handsome as all get out, incredibly humble. Let them know. Anyway, let's get rocking. Let's get into it. Here is the order of operations for today. We're going to talk briefly about Alexander's campaigns before Persia. There isn't as much detail for these as some of the later and more grand battles and campaigns that we're going to be talking about later. So this part of the episode's going to be pretty quick. Plus, I already covered it in some detail earlier. Mostly, I want to focus on Persian and later stuff here. Obviously, for these little battles and skirmishes, there aren't as many details as the grand battles. So a lot of this episode's going to be dedicated to the Battle of the Granicus. But overall, with the little battles, we're going to be focusing almost on like case studies, I guess, highlighting some of what I feel are the most notable and laudable characteristics of Alexander's generalship. What made him a truly skilled commander and not just someone who stated by on his perfectly honed fighting force he inherited, as some have pressed. The big set piece of this episode that I touched on will be the Battle of the Granicus, the first truly major battle that Alexander commanded against the Persians. But because it wasn't against Darius III, I'm going to be keeping it here. I think it makes sense for reasons that will hopefully become clear when we get there. We'll wrap up with like some of the variability and inventive things our guy gets up to. 
This episode is labeled Alexander the Skirmisher. We will be talking about one major battle and a few sieges as well. I just chose to focus on the greater examples of each in later episodes. I do kind of wish that for these episodes, I went back to a chronological format. But hey, you know, we'll see what we see. Iron sharpens iron. If this doesn't work, I learned for next time. You think Alexander the Great's the last dude I'm covering? You think this is the last season of a history I'm doing? No, wrong. Both counts. Here's a little disclaimer I'd like to address and discuss some things up top here quick. Not, strictly speaking, a military historian. I am quite fond of Alexander the Great's histories. Have studied, you know, obviously other modern engagements. Uh, I wrote my thesis on military campaign during the Revolutionary War, so I'm not like total novice at this, but I'm not, this isn't my main focus, my major focus. So I just, I do want to get that out of the way, as always. Also, I feel like, and this might just be because I'm reading a ton of sources at once for this, but there are some who kind of try to chirp at our boy Alexander. You know, they try to make it seem like he was a product of his father exclusively, that he was a product of the army and commanders that his father created, that he wasn't actually that great, which, you know, may be fair that he wasn't the greatest, but um, here's a question. You know, if Alexander wasn't actually at least great in the way that the ancients understood it to be, why did his successors, after he died, Ptolemy, right, one of his generals, the other guys who I'm fucking blanking on right now, but why did they hold him up rather than take credit for his achievements? You'd think they'd be like, hey, yeah, Alexander conquered it. That was all me. I was a senior general in this guy's army. He didn't do shit. So basically, like what I'm getting at is, yes, he had a campaign historian who was actively putting out propaganda as he was marching, doing stuff, right? But why did this myth of his greatness arise at all if there wasn't a whole lot of smoke to back it up. Was it just because he conquered a staggering amount of territory? I don't think so. I think it was because he demonstrated qualities that the ancients really thought equal greatness and that he had a lot of skill in this arena of command and military leadership. And I basically what I'm getting at here is I think it is stretching reality to attempt to undermine his successes, his martial abilities, his military leadership, specifically. And, you know, obviously we're talking about a deeply flawed man and individual here, but in his realm, his chosen field of conquest, I do believe that he was deeply special and deeply talented. But that little, you know, soapbox moment out of the way, let's get into it. As I'm sure you brilliant listeners out there recall, Alexander took the throne in the summer of 336 BCE, following what else but the murder of his father Philip. After quickly being raised by the Macedonian army's assembly to the throne, Alexander came to power in a Macedonia that Plutarch described as exposed to great jealousies, dire hatreds, and dangers on every hand. Which made sense. Philip had risen this upstart nation from a destitute backwater filled with what its neighbors considered barbarians to a nation of powerful and rich warriors who had the entire region under their thumbs. With a pretty untested and a very young king on the throne, 
it's not unlikely that most everyone assumed Macedonia's historical status was about to be restored, especially given the many precedents of civil war, which throughout the centuries before had kept Macedonia turbulent and weak. However, Alexander, while not as savvy a statesman as his father, was at this early stage savvy in court intrigue, or at least those close to him were. Perhaps it was, you know, that cabal of older advisors we talked about last episode and Alexander the Lover, you know, Ptolemy and that ilk who were more experienced in court intrigue and so helped him set about solidifying his power. Regardless, after stomping out any potential rivals to the throne and perhaps taking care of some personal grievances, Alexander set about to ensure his northern border would remain intact. He even expanded a little bit. In the early days of Alexander's reign, he did not promote his friends super high into the ranks of officers or leaders in the army. I don't know if it was the case at this exact stage because Parmenio was in Asia Minor securing a foothold still at this point. But by the time of the Persian campaign, many senior officials and officers were in some way affiliated with Parmenio, two specifically we will touch on very soon. But in general, during the early portions of Alexander's kingship, the officers came from those who held those positions in Philip's day, which I think is a point in Alexander's favor because a lot of less savvy, less secure, less smart kings would have, I think, dismissed these commanders and inserted their boys in them pretty much immediately. So there is that famous cabal of Alexander's, you know, quote-unquote boyhood friends that we covered who do rise to these various prestigious positions, but that's later in the war after, by and large, they had proven themselves. But this veteran status of Alexander's army and officer corps has led some to make the claim that Alexander wasn't that great or even necessarily good and just benefited from having a technological advantage over his foes, the Sarissa, right, which would prove to be the unit of the day for hundreds of years later, and an incredibly seasoned, well-trained, and confident army honed under his father and Parmenio. Some even go so far as to give all the credit for Alexander to Parmenio, and doesn't make any goddamn sense because perhaps his most impressive battle comes after Parmenio is dead. So, all these petty attempts, in my opinion, to diminish Alexander the Great's martial abilities go too far, and I believe that will be effectively demonstrated in these next few episodes. Now, the first battle, if you want to call it that, that I want to discuss comes during Alexander and the Macedonians' campaigns against the Thracians that had remained unconquered by Philip II. Alexander was likely leading something smaller than the main Macedonian force, perhaps as few as 10,000 men, along with some engineers and artillery and catapults. Something I'm not sure if I brought up. One of the main innovations, in addition to the phalanx and just in general being a pretty sick commander that Philip did, is that he had a dedicated engineering force for things like coming up with sick artillery on the spot, uh, siege engines, sieges in general, stuff like that. And so Alexander also kept that going once he assumed command. And this would serve him well throughout the campaign. I will be delving into the composition of the army that invaded Persia when we get there, but from what I've gleaned, it seems like Alexander had units from most of the main types of forces the Macedonians employed at this stage, just less of them than the total amount. This was likely due to supply reasons. Supplying forces in hostile and mountainous territory is kind of tough, obviously, 
and also the Thracians Alexander was seeking to bring to battle were at least semi-nomadic maybe is too strong of a term, but they were like, they were roving around. They were tribes, people roving around all over the place. And they weren't keen on coming to battle very often. They liked to kind of hit and run, which is one of the reasons they were able to remain unconquered. In the encounter, I wish to highlight a large group of Thracians controlled a mountain pass ahead of Alexander's forces. So if you picture it, I'm a visual person. I'm able to picture things pretty quickly in my head, though. So I don't know. I'm able to picture and envision things in my head very well. So I'm going to try to map this out for people who don't have that same skill. So if you picture it, there's like a mountain pass up top. We got Thracians. And they also have like on the slopes overhanging the trail on each side. We got more Thracians up top. And they had formed up with wagons into an improvised fortification. So picture, you know, top of the slope, wagons forming an improvised kind of wall. And then they had other ones poised to come crashing down onto the Macedonians. This would have been an effective tactic in theory because the effect of this wouldn't only kill or wound the oncoming Macedonian soldiers, but it would also make it difficult, if not impossible, to maintain their tight phalanx formation that made them so deadly and formidable. And then outside of the formation, they'd be easier to attack, kill, and rout. Alexander saw what they intended and along with his officers concocted a scheme to counteract it. This was only possible because of the high standard of discipline and drill installed into the army. So he ordered his troops to advance as they normally would up a mountain, but then as the wagon came crashing down, and I'm fucking doing hand motions to try to demonstrate this, but as the carts come crashing down towards the marching troops, at the last moment they were to open a lane and allow it to just pass through them, and they'd be fine. They'd be chilling it. You know, they open up a gap in the ranks. Wagon goes careening by. Everybody's good. If they were in a portion of the pass that was too narrow to allow them to open up ranks in this way, he said, lie down, right? Put your shields over your head. It's going to make a ramp, and they'll go over, and you'll be fine. Or just lie down flat, put the shields over you, and it'll just roll on over you. Everybody will be fine. Apparently, these strategies all worked to perfection, and there were no death or injuries of the soldiers as they marched up the pass. This battle was a rousing success. Alexander also broke from traditional military infantry thinking here because as he's marching up, he has his archers rush out ahead and start picking off the Thracians as they attempted to, you know, like restore their morale and prepare to march against the Macedonians. So, you know, they're attempting to mass, get organized into a cool formation. Archers come charging out, shoot, 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 dead. And, you know, that's pretty rare. Good job by Alexander once again. So the Thracians have put a lot of effort and planning into this and seeing it fail so completely, it just shattered their morale and they broke when Alexander led a foot charge of the elite infantry against them. Thracians fled, left behind many of the women and children who were accompanying them and those were all enslaved, unfortunately. And all told, over a thousand Thracian soldiers were killed. Now, the reason I highlight this specific engagement is because it demonstrates several winning facets of Alexander as a commander. He was inventive, decisive, and quick. By all accounts throughout his career, he had an uncanny ability to survey a scene, see the enemy's formations, 
or I guess in this case, like grouping mixed with like equipment going on and quickly formulate a solution to what was in front of him. He also had a penchant for outside the bots thinking that defied conventional wisdom of the day or was just like completely out of line, out off the wall. Nobody else would have really thought about it. And of course, we're going to have some more examples, not just in this episode, but in later episodes as we continue. Some of this was sheer confidence or perhaps arrogance. He was so self-assured in his ability as well as the abilities of his men that his mere belief that he and they could accomplish something led to him attempting those things. And so basically he was so confident in himself and the abilities of his soldiers, he would just try shit that nobody else would have. Again, during this campaign, this time against the Triple Lions, Alexander would make effective use of his peltist and archer's peltist were kind of like slingers is my understanding of things. If I am, I didn't write down. So peltist, I didn't write down exactly what they were. My understanding was that they were basically like slingers. They would, you know, like David and Goliath type stuff going on. Either that or javelin throwers. And I can't recall right now. And I should have written that down. But anyway, Alexander uses these distant soldiers, if you will, along with the archers to provoke the Tribalians into a fits engagement and a wild charge. And so, you know, these triple lands, they weren't keen on fighting face-to-face battles. And so it was another like point, a feather in his cap that he was able to get them to do it by getting their blood up and harassing them into a full-on attack and business and then being able to break them in that way. Another thing that I want to highlight in this area of, in this theater of Alexander's campaigns is when Alexander crosses the Danube. His father Philip had been the first Macedonian king to reach the Danube, but he hadn't crossed it. Alexander, once he reaches it, is apparently seized with a heroic yearning of pathos to do so, and he orders his army across. This time, relying on the knowledge of Xenophon's March of the 10,000, Alexander has his men stuff their tents with straw to fashion boats and make their way across. Once they get across, the surprise of the Macedonians causes their enemies to give way without much fight. This spectacular display also caused other leaders to negotiate with Alexander and the Macedonians, paving the way for operations elsewhere. He also reaffirmed via, renego- he also reaffirmed via negotiation the loyalty of the Paeonians and the Agranians. You know, not bad for someone who supposedly sucked at statescraft, but he then had to march to give battle to two Illyrian kings who were preparing to a vault. At which point, Alexander found himself in a sticky situation, arriving at the gates of Cletus, one of the Illyrian kings, while the other, Glossius, was en route. So they were getting ready to, you know, meet up, that little camp going on with a little walled town, and then they were going to invade Macedonia. Alexander didn't have the forces to prosecute a siege and defend against Glossius, So he was trying to take over the city quickly, wasn't able to do it quickly enough because it was like Alexander gets there, attacks, Glossius arrives. So Alexander finds himself literally stuck between a wall filled with enemies and an army. And he was once again forced to demonstrate his creative nature here. Again, this is a tactic that only worked because of the incredible discipline Philip and his officers had drilled into the army but it doesn't diminish the fact that Alexander had to come up with this plan. So he has his army form up in close ranks and begin drilling silently. And so, you know, they're going about, they're doing their marches, they're 
basically just showboating. They did, they're like Pete Totten for the Illyrians. But the thing is, the Illyrians were, if you sort of picture like stereotypical portrayals of Keldit or Barbarian forces the Romans would fight in a movie, you know, undisciplined ranks, undisciplined fighters, or undisciplined ranks, individual fighter type stuff, loose charges. That's sort of the nature of how the Illyrians fought. And so it wasn't just the uncanny silence of the Macedonians that unnerved them. It was also this insane level of discipline. They couldn't imagine being able to do something like that. They couldn't imagine wanting to do something like that. So seeing these eerily silent soldiers just march in these like staggeringly, staggeringly uniform formations, do these staggeringly uniform routines, thrust their spears all at once, all that stuff. It has them mesmerized and it has them a little on edge. And so the Macedonians continue to do their drills and their movements bring them closer and closer to the Illyrian lines. And as this happens, some of the Illyrians begin to peel away, fleeing these disturbingly silent foes. Abruptly, Alexander changes their formation so that the head was facing the left flank of the Illyrians and he orders them to shout and fling their shields together. After seeing this shockingly silent and disciplined display, the sudden clamor, the sudden cacophony, brights the Illyrians, and they flee, allowing Alexander and his troops to withdraw to better ground. The Illyrians are fleeing, and then they're like, wait a minute, we got these guys outnumbered. What the fuck are we doing? They begin to wheel around and go to face them as the Macedonians attempt to withdraw across the river. At this point, Alexander is said to have served as a rear guard with the Hypacipists, holding and charging the Illyrians whenever they found their nerve and forcing them to flee again and again without any real engagement, which is weird. But as the army withdraws across the river, they form up immediately. So it's a very organized retreat. As Alexander is leading these repeated charges, he also orders that catapults are deployed and they begin shooting. So the the Macedonians had torsion catapults, which were basically like giant crossbows, and they're just shooting them at the Illyrians. The Illyrians aren't about that, so they flee time and again. Once the Macedonians are all across the river, the Illyrians are like, all right, we punked them, they're all, they all fled. They set up camp. They're convinced the Macedonians are just beating it back to Pella. I don't know why. It's really dumb. They didn't send up any pickets, any guards, any scouts. And so Alexander leads a strike force back across the river in the dead of night, and it's supposed to just kind of get in position and fight a little bit in order to give the main army time to come across and destroy them. However, the Illyrians were even more unprepared than the Macedonians assumed, and so this little strike force just absolutely routes them. The two kings manage to flee, but the Illyrians never pose a threat to the Macedonians, even once Alexander's over in Persia fight. Thus, Alexander spent 335 BCE securing the northern Macedonian borders, but the young king and young general, perhaps most crucially for our purposes, had demonstrated some important skills, and he had emerged unbeaten by forces who had, in earlier generations, utterly dominated Macedonians, which was no sure thing at the time. There's like, because Alexander was able to accomplish so much and with very few setbacks, a lot of this seems to be, in hindsight, obvious and ine- inevitable. But at the time, none of it was, which is important to remember. So the Thebans down in Greece, they're convinced Alexander got killed during the fighting of putting down these revolts. 
and as we discussed in a previous episode, they continued in their own revolt, even once it became obvious that he was alive. There's nothing too exciting, innovative, or notable about the siege of Thebes, of Thebes, of Thebes. We already covered it in some detail in the Alexander the King episode, so we're going to gloss over it here. Suffice to say, the Macedonians won, Thebes was destroyed completely, and the population sold into slavery. This served as an example and was a shocking to the Greek world because of the size, power, and fame of Thebes. And, you know, after this, none of the allied Greeks would revolt against Alexander. Even when he was in Persia, the Spartans would try to touch some stuff up, but it didn't really go well for him. But anyway, with the northern border secured and the Greek allies once again suitably cowed, Alexander was ready to begin the planned campaign in Persia. Now, let's talk about who would be joining the king in Persia. There were, of course, the two to. There were around 2,000 to 3,000 companion cavalry under the command of Philotus, often called a friend of Alexander. His youngest brother, Hector, was a better friend of Alexander's. But most importantly, what we have to know, Philotus was Parmenio's son. And this position of commander of the companion cavalry, very important. The companions were armed with a long spear, not as long as the Sarissa but significantly longer than those used by the Persian cavalry. The spear, like the Sarissa, was made of heavy Cornell wood, and also like the Sarissa, had a metal spiked butt on the end to make it more wieldy, you know, counterbalance the weight. The spear apparently shattered on impact fairly often. Alexander's would break on at least one notable occasion to come. And the companions also had swords, which also had swords, which they would often use once their spears broke. Makes sense. Lightly, they didn't use shields all that often, if at all, while on horseback, relying on open-faced helmets and chest armor made of leather, cloth, or metal. They also had these heavy tall boots with braces. Didn't have saddles, there's no evidence that they had saddles at least. There were some in parts of Europe that were very early saddles introduced, but it doesn't seem to have been the case at all in the Greek Macedonian world. But they did have saddle cloth with the coolest Macedonians using the pelts of lions, leopards, things like that. So the Macedonians had to be skilled riders, even though they had these riding claws going on, and they had to be skilled warriors in order to maintain their wedge formations and keep their seat while charging into battle against all manner of enemy. And given the high level of attrition, the horses would undergo constantly changing mounts. Next up, we have the Hypacipists, who were the most professional of the units in the army. Although, I would say, you know, these guys are on campaign for 10 years. It seems to me like at that point, all the army was pretty professional. Anyway, the Hypazipists were composed of 3,000-ish soldiers renowned and in fact chosen for their strength, skill, and courage. They were likely armed and armored in something akin to that of the way that a standard... They were likely armed and armored in something akin to the way that a standard Greek hoplite was. And these 3,000 Hypazipists were organized into three battalions of 1,000 men further split into two companies of 500. They were drilled more frequently than the other units in the Macedonian army. They had better recruits, and they were the most frequently engaged in battle. The Hypacipists were under the command of Nicanor, another son of Parmenio. So this is what I was getting at when I said that Parmenio had a lot of his people in the ranks of the army, and this could have been a benefit of him helping raise Alexander to the throne, supporting him in his quest to become king once his father died. In addition to being 
the leading and most important general under Philip, Parmenio was an important upper Macedonian royal. So it does make sense. The bulk of the Macedonian forces were, of course, the famed phalanx, the foot companions of the chain, or the pes hatori. Each regiment was organized by region and numbered around 1,500 at the start of the campaign. These were further divided into three units, and then further still into two units of around 256. There was a high level of organization into the phalanx, which was typically arranged 16 by 16, getting us to that 256 number I just referenced. Each level had a commander, and it seems the best and most disciplined troops marched at the front and rear at the column, ensuring the pace kept the same, and also the standard Greek military doctrine of the day taught that the back and front ranks of each unit should hold the bravest men to keep the army from fleeing. You know, if we got the bravest dudes up front, we got the bravest dudes in back, the cowards aren't going anywhere. There were also units of light cavalry and perhaps Macedonian light infantry, a variety of allied contingents of infantry and cavalry, most notably the Thessalian cavalry, who would play incredibly important roles in many battles to come. The Thessalian cavalry were about the same in number as the companion cavalry and incredibly, incredibly, incredibly skilled. They often served on the pivotal left wing of the various important battles with Permenio. There were also around 7,000 allied Greeks in the army and a steady flow of mercenaries as well throughout the campaigns. At this point, about 5,000. We're hard-pressed to know exactly how many men Alexander had at his disposal or sources as fucking always disagree. Some list a number of around 30,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. Others have it at around 40,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. This is perhaps including or not the 10,000 troops Parmenio had with him after being sent to Persia to establish a bridgehead by Philip. So, you know, he could have had 40,000, he could have had 30,000, he could have had 50,000. But he did probably have around 5,000 cavalry, which I, that's like the main, most insistent our dudes are, whatever. Following Philip's death, Parmenio and the Macedonians had been hemmed in, harried, and forced to withdraw, not all the way, but almost all the way, back across the Dardanelles by Memnon of Rhodes, a Greek commander in the Persian army, formerly a refugee in the court of Philip II. With the main force led, he's, it's also Barsenae is his wife, and once, he's, uh, once she's captured by the Macedonians, becomes Alexander's lover. With the main force led by Alexander on the way, Memnon was no longer enough, and the local satrap took command of forcing out the invaders. Memnon had an army of around 5,000 mercenaries with him. Obviously not enough to hem in this giant army the Macedonians are coming in with. The Macedonians crossed the Hellespont, which is, you know, the waterway in between Asia and Europe. The Macedonians crossed that. They sacrificed to Poseidon about halfway through. And once they're near shore, Alexander was said to wade across in full armor and cast a spear into the sand, declaring the land Spear One. This emulates a famous story from the Trojan War. It also goes against the example set by Xerxes during his invasion of Greece. And this is an example of how throughout these campaigns, Alexander has a very conscious habit of staying in tune with history, staying in tune with the gods. He's frequently emulating or going out of his way to go against historical examples of previous commanders and invaders, conquerors, 
And this, again, we will touch on in a far greater details in a later episode, but I wanted to bring it up now because it is interesting and it is noteworthy. Arcistes was likely the overall commander of the Persians. He was the satrap of the area, uh, but due to the large number of nobles in the command structure, his authority was not super secure. There was also the aforementioned Memnon, who was a favorite of Darius III. Together, this group of men, which was composed of the satraps of the local regions and the Greek mercenary commander, they were tasked with finding a way to repel the invaders. Memnon proposed and fought hard for a scorched earth campaign that would deprive the invaders of resources to supply the army and civilians marching with the army and eventually forced them to withdraw home in disgrace. He also proposed leading an invasion force against Macedonia, which would, of course, in theory, force Alexander to turn tail and deal with that. There's been a lot of hullabaloo about how the Persians should have followed this strategy and that if they had done so, we'd never heard of Alexander. Now, some of that is perhaps motivated by the ancient sources giving preeminence to Memnon, uplifting him and his logic because he was a Greek and neglecting any potential winning strategies the Persian generals raised. Ancient historians, not alone, modern historians give this theory a lot of credit. They give Memnon a lot of credit for proposing this strategy. However, not a guarantee it would work, and although it may have been sound military strategy, it could very plausibly have worked, because it was difficult to supply large field armies in enemy territory, especially because at this time the harvest season was not yet at hand, and in addition, Alexander couldn't really just strip supplies from the surrounding communities and cities and leave them to starve because he needed to win them to his cause if he wanted to resist the Persians. The support for Memnon's strategy ignores the fact that it was it would be a very difficult political decision for the Persians to undertake because this region, very far removed from the Persian heartland, very far removed even from you know Babylon, Assyria, and as such, it had little love for Persia or Persian. It had rebelled years ago. Obviously, the Aeonian Greeks were in this region. And so burning their fields, their homes, forcing them to flee, hardly going to endear them to the Persian cause, could very well have sent them right into the Macedonians. So, you know, good strategy in theory, not necessarily the guaranteed winner I think a lot of modern historians made it out to be. I am hardly alone in this assessment. Adrian Goldsworthy, my guy, raises similar points. There are implications that the Persian commanders were mistrustful of the Greek Memnon, perhaps owing to his time in the Macedonian court, perhaps feeling that if they followed his strategy, it would reflect badly on them, perhaps thinking that he was just trying to delay in order to accrue favor with Darius III and get more responsibility from him. Perhaps they just didn't like his plan and felt confident that they might just watch the Macedonians. You know, they did have a notable advantage. They had perhaps as many as 20,000 cavalry ready to face the invaders. They also had little reason to suspect that the Macedonians and their allied cavalry would be so skilled and effective. They had some experience fighting the Greeks, if you recall. Greeks, tremendous heavy infantry, not fucking good at horse fighting. But the Persians, under the command of the nobles and of the nobles and Memnon, not saying who the nobles are because I cannot pronounce it really well, but they were on a collision course 
that met at the Dranicus River. Numbers on both sides for this battle are unclear. Alexander Ledley had around half as many. Alexander Ledley had around half of his infantry with him, leaving behind the other half, including the Greek allies, to avoid having to supply them in enemy, enemy territory, and functionally all of his cavalry, which probably culminated around 20,000 troops. Adrian Goldsworthy has an interesting anecdote that the Greek hoplites had a smaller operational range than the Macedonians and allied contingents, which is probably why they were left behind. They marched at a slower pace, they carried heavier armor and fewer supplies, and they were accustomed to having slaves carry things for them. The Macedonians, for their part, were used to carrying things on their own, including supplies, and thus leaving the Greeks behind meant not only less mouths to feed, but greater speed. The Persians probably had around 20,000 cavalry and maybe as much as 20,000 infantry. It could have been 5,000 infantry. It could have been, who knows. One of the reasons for this lack of clarity is that Diodorus offers what I and others would categorize as a nonsensical version of events. He lists 10,000 cavalry, very plausible, and 100,000 infantry, which is just fucking insane. Uh, our guy Justin idiot list 600,000 troops, which is utter nonsense, and Arian lists around 20,000 of both, which is traditionally accepted, if speculated, to be slightly inflated on both sides by modern historians. Arian and Diodorus are the only surviving complete accounts of the battle. Diodorus's uh, doesn't really make sense and sort of devolves into a Homeric tale at some point. Arian is somewhat undetailed relative to Diodorus, so I am relying on the work of modern historians to tell the tale of this battle. This is a fairly major battle, obviously. You know, we got around 40 to 60,000 men involved, but it is more notable for daring rather than any spectacular strategy on Alexander's part. And I just, I thought it made sense to include in this episode. The three other battles we're going to be covering in the Great Battles episode are going to be, we have more detail, they're more involved, and it's going to take a lot longer to cover, so I thought it made sense to put this battle here. Anyway, the Persians had advanced toward the Macedonians and paused to encamp at the Granitus River. The river wasn't particularly deep, but was outstandingly fast and wide. It also had very steep banks on the side where the Persian forces were. Alexander's scouts reported to him on their location and numbers, and the Persians drew up into formation, likely not because they were expecting to attack, how traditional military doctrine would strongly suggest not attacking a fixed enemy uphill across a river after a long march. So the Persians probably just formed up with their 20,000 horse on the bank in a display of force. The fast pace of the river and the steep slope meant that an enemy army marching across would likely break from formation and be easily picked upon as they attempted to ford the river. Parmenio, the seasoned, experienced general, would bring up all these things to Alexander. And this is probably a later invention, because there's almost like a series of these stories, this like recurring bit where before a major battle, Parmenio will be like, Hey, my dude, take the cautious route, and Alexander will be like, no. But even if it is total fabrication, which it might not be, you know, Parmenio was much more seasoned, he probably would have advised Alexander to follow traditional doctrine. 
but Parmenio is said to have advised Alexander that they should wait to cross the river and attack at dawn once the enemy had withdrawn to make camp. Parmenio was by far a more experienced campaigner than Alexander. He had been Philip's most well-respected, best, coveted, and most important general, so it does make sense that he would offer Alexander this advice. Alexander, for his part, is said to have dismissed the elder's advice out of hand, saying that having crossed the Dardanelles, he'd be ashamed to turn back to this pretty stream. And so saying, he ordered an attack. Now, this wasn't necessarily folly, nor was it necessarily the inexperience of youth. He needed a victory over the Persians. He was keenly aware of this, and he needed it quickly, because doing so would strengthen the resolve and morale of his men and instill greater confidence in him. It's also likely he thought that were he to wait or resort to trickery, maybe, to defeat the Persians in this first battle, it would soften the effects of the victory. The topography of the battlefield is disputed and depends on whether the modern sorcerer reading believes that the modern river near the village, believed to be the site of the battle, flows along the same route and has the same flow as it did back in the day. Regardless, it is believed that despite the fast flow and steep slope, it was fordable in at least a few spots between the two armies, and that although the playbed was slippery once the battle got going, there were these like ramp-like gravelly parts of the slope that the army and cavalry of the Macedonians would be able to make their way up. Alexander ordered or arranged his men as follows. Again, I'm going to do my best to describe this in a way that you can picture, and if not, I'm sorry. I will be posting back pictures of the battle line on Instagram. Another reason to follow people. Anyway, Philotus and the vast majority of the companion cavalry were on the extreme right of the flank with the Agrinian allies and archers in support of them. Then the light cavalry to their left. Paeonians and the last squadron. So we're going from right to left. Philotus and the companion cavalry, Agrinian allies and archers, light cavalry, Paeonians, and then another squadron of companions. Next, getting near the middle, we have the Hypacipus, the elite infantry under Nitronar, and then the Thessalian and Thracian cavalry on the left wing under Parmenio's overall command. Persians were apparently arranged with their cavalry basically against the river, not the Greek mercenaries, which would have made more sense, and most sources sort of stir over this, or they note that it was likely more complicated than it suggested, some speculate it was just like a clumped mob, which doesn't make sense. Others are like, hey, it was probably an organized formation. Stephen English in the field campaigns of Alexander suggests that the Persians may have distrusted, distrusted Memnon and the Greeks, fearing that the added prestige of defeating Alexander would have led, for, would have led to more favor from Darius for Memnon and he also suggests it's possible they just wanted the glory of defeating and repelling Alexander for themselves. Now, you know, at this stage, not necessarily a ton of glory to be had. It's not like everyone was shaking in their boots about this 20-year-old invading their kingdom. But, interesting note nonetheless. I also think that given the importance and large size of the Persian cavalry, which lightly outnumbered, or at least nearly outnumbered, the entirety of the Macedonian forces, they simply drew up along the river in a way that was designed to 
intimidate the Macedonians into withdrawing. And then once the Persians, or once the Macedonians deployed, the Persians simply didn't have time to redeploy and bring the infantry up and cavalry back. You know, the Macedonians and allies, they're pretty fucking well drilled at this point. We've covered that. They probably got their lines out pretty quickly. And the Persians didn't want to. It took a long time to set up ancient battles. Would have been real messy to who tried to redeploy on the fly within in the face of an enemy battle of an enemy force, clearly keen on attacking. Alexander, upon seeing the Persian array, first had a diversionary force led by Amintas across the river. This both drew the Persian attack, which obviously led to immense casualties amongst Amintas's strike force, although the numbers at the end aren't that high, but it also proved that the river could be crossed. Amintas's strike force, at first, just from sheer ferocity, starts making some headway, but then driven back by the massive numbers disadvantage. This is a cavalry strike force. By the way, neglected to say that, Alexander takes the main force of Campanian cavalry and drives them into a headlong charge into the thickest concentration of Persians. And the rest of the army starts struggling across wherever they can. Eventually, Alexander and his cavalry forces manage to slowly but surely drive the Persians back. And as Adrian Goldsworthy notes in Ancient Warfare, uh, typically, you know, cavalry battles are these swirling affairs, forces charge and withdraw again and again, and that this relatively stationary battle was more like infantry between horses, which was likely very, very hellish. You know what I mean? Like, the poor horses can't imagine what they're going through on both sides. Thousands of fights going on. Some are trying to charge up a bank into pointy spears and masked men. The other are trying to unnaturally hold their ground against these charging pointy spears. And also, you know, not necessarily natural for a horse to hold its ground like that. They want to be moving. So, it makes sense that the Persians would be giving ground like that. Apart from this, the mass other Macedonian forces managed to cross away from the cavalry battle and they begin to face the supporting Persian forces, which were the Greek mercenaries. Now, our sources narrow to an almost Homeric demonstration of Alexander's actions in this battle at this point. He was possibly riding our old friend Bucephalus, but he was rocking an absolutely sick fit. A picture of that on Instagram as well. He had a cool cloak, awesome helmet with these really cool plumes up top, all of which marked him out to the enemy. You know, it was designed to mark him out to the Macedonians, make him easy to identify. He also had an entourage with him. He's the chain after all, so he's got his bodyguards. But this becomes relevant because our dude was leading from the front. You know how he does. And as we touched on earlier, he's fighting. He's in the th- 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 things. His spear shattered. His spear shatters as it was wont to do. After getting a new one, he charges once again into a throne of Persians, apparently right at the nobleman Mithridates, who was the son-in-law of Darius III. Probably didn't know who he was, but... He might have just saw this guy dressed in a sit fit with a pretty horse and was like, that's the one I'm going to kill. Sometimes, died horse, it is said that Mithridates threw a spear that punctured through Alexander's shield and into his breastplate. Doesn't seem possible that a human could do that unless the shield was not good. Also, we've already covered Macedonians didn't really use shields on horseback, so 
suspect account. Regardless, Alexander does kill Mithridates, driving a spear into his face, apparently, and throwing him off his horse. Another nobleman, Rosasis, advances against the king, catching him unaware and striking his helmet, slicing the plumes off, and perhaps giving him a resounding blow on the head, even cutting through the helmet into some accounts. Again, Diodorus, again, sounds like Cap Diodorus, I'm sorry. But if it did in fact strike Alexander's helmet and not simply strike off, slice off the plumes, our dude probably had his bell run at that point, put him in concussion protocol, sent him to the blue tent. Anyway, again, Alexander kills this nobleman, despite the blows to the head, but is almost killed by yet another nobleman, Spithridates, but is saved when Titus the Black comes charging in and cuts off the Persian's arm, at which point Alexander kills that guy. So, Titus, so named because of the color of his hair, not his skin, was the brother of Alexander's nursemaid and an officer of near Philip's generation. He had saved the young king's life for, cert- for certain. He had certainly saved the young king's life, and had he not been there, we'd probably never have heard of Alexander III of Macedon, unless we were some nerds, which, of course, we are. So we probably would have heard of Alexander III of Macedon. Anyway, at about this time, the Persians broke. As the left wing and Parmenio advanced, the cavalry fled, and the infantry mercenaries were left behind, apparently enraptured by the swift breakage of the Persian line. If Irene is to be believed, 18,000 of these mercenaries were killed, and 2,000 were sent back in chains to Macedonia to work the mines in slavery. Many of the Persian commanders in the area died, Aristides killed himself after escaping, but Memnon of Rhodes escaped and would be a thorn in Alexander's side until he died of illness. The Persians suffered perhaps 1,000 to 2,500 dead cavalry, and the Macedonians probably something in the ballpark of 100, which, given the heavy fighting, seems impossibly low. Ancient sources on both numbers in battle and casualties shaky at best, as we all know by this point, but not impossible it was 100. I don't know, though. I was not there. However, this battle, conclusive and important victory for Alexander and the Macedonians, the king had prevailed in the face of staggering odds, had proven his ability to prevail in the face of traditional military wisdom, which perhaps furthered his reputation in the eyes of the locals he sought to win over and the Macedonians he sought to inspire. It also demonstrated his individual prowess, which may well have been exaggerated, but so, and then also there's the fight, which he killed three guys in almost single combat, which, you know, maybe possibly exaggerated, but to me, the fact that we have every reason to believe that Alexander was about five feet tall, very short man, even for the time, leading both major and minor battles from the front, and accruing some notable injuries as time went on, I think it's fair to say that dude was a pretty talented fighter, you know? He does get those, he does rack up those injuries as things go on, but the fact that he's able to survive in these battles while doing these crazy headlong charges into the most difficult and dangerous spots of the battle often speaks, I think, to his individual prowess. It has to. So, thus far, we've seen Alexander's creativity, his boldness, his willingness to defy conventions, and 
an exemplary trust in his troops. All laudable military characteristics on display thus far. It's also, I think, fair to give him credit for maintaining the drill and organization of his father's army. I think he deserves some credit for recognizing the importance of it and the logic of keeping things the same. Because as I touched on, less skilled, less savvy leaders and commanders would have sought to remove experienced commanders from his father's generation immediately, and they also might not have recognized that the superior drill and discipline were necessary to the successes of that army. So yeah, give Philip his flowers, give him his props, give him all the credit for establishing those things whole cloth, but I do think it's unfair to give him all of the credit for Alexander's ability to maintain the Macedonian fighting machine as some are very inclined to do. This battle at the Granicus, which took place in May, by the way, May 334 BCE, also demonstrates Alexander's luck. He made it out relatively unscathed, despite the close brush with death, and as I'm sure we know, all the best commanders in history are more than a little lucky. Obviously, they made their own luck, but still notable. He also demonstrated some class after the battle, erecting statues to his fallen men, fallen men, and treating the Persian dead with respect, if not the Greek mercenaries. He also sent 300 captured Panopolis Panopolis, to the Athenian temple of Athena, which had been burned by Xerxes, and he had an inscription carved reading, Alexander, son of Philip, and the Greeks, except the Spartans, set up these spoils from the barbarians dwelling in Asia. Most ancient and modern sources skirt over the rest of 334 and parts of 333 BCE, and we will do the same here because I'm more or less cherry-picking key battles that serve as examples of Alexander's generalship and what I do think we should reflect on his strategic decisions during this part of the campaign, specifically his decision to win a naval battle from the land. We will get a little more detail coming up uh, because next episode I will touch on the Siege of Halicarnassus uh, briefly. But basically what we need to know, Memnon launches a naval offensive in the Aegean. Alexander, perhaps because his forces were vastly outnumbered, perhaps he recognizes, you know, maybe he doesn't have the skills in that arena of warfare, but Permania would volunteer to lead the battle himself, apparently. Alexander declines that request because Alexander insists that this naval war will be won by land. And it kind of works perhaps again mostly because Alexander is very lucky. So Tyremes, the main, you know, fighting ship of the day, they have to be preached pretty often to prevent them from being or beached pretty often to prevent them from being waterlogged. They also couldn't carry a ton of supplies. So this whole plan to win the sea war by land actually does make some sense. Persians likely outnumbered the Mato Greek fleet by around four hundred on the Persian side to 160-ish. The Greek forces, who comprised much of the macro Greek fleet, also had questionable loyalty, and there are indications that they weren't, you know, sending their best. They didn't send the best sailors they had. So by conquering the seaports and coastal cities and depriving the Persian fleet of chances to dock and resupply, the Macedonians could realistically-ish win this way. It's also, you know, you capture the city where the sailors in the Persian army are from, that city becomes a hostage, and, you know, maybe, who's to say, they will, I don't know, come over to your side later in the war. Who knows? However, things on this front, they're not going super well. 
because Memnon was actually pretty nice with it. Again, we'll get into this a little bit more next episode, but Memnon eventually gets sick and dies, and also eventually Darius recalls much of the fleet. So the strategy of winning the naval war in the Aegean by land fucking worked. And so the rest of 334 and 333 BCE following the Battle of the Granitus, they're spent pursuing this strategy, conquering Asia Minor. Some cities come over peacefully. Some had to be forcibly subdued and as a rule were largely treated more harshly. We also did the Battle of Issus in 333 BCE, which will be dealt in in a later episode, obviously. 332 brings us to the Siege of Tyr, maybe my favorite of Alexander's engagements. And again, the subject of another episode, as well as the Siege of Gaza, which is another pretty cool one, both of which reflect favorably on Alexander's creativity and his engineering core. 331 brings us to Alexander's time in Egypt and the Battle of Guadamela. 330, we see the pursuit of Darius, which kind of made sense here, but really we gotta have that Guadamela episode. But the contents we need for this next series of battles we're gonna touch on is that Darius was on the loose still. Alexander was attempting to capture him, and also he was trying to capture these rich cities as he had already done with Babylon and Susa in order to deprive, in order to deprive the fleeing Persian king of any potential resources. It would also be, this was also the invasion of Persia proper, not just the conquered lands by Cyrus and others. So, pretty important. So, Alexander and his army are on the road to Persepolis. Things are going pretty slowly. Alexander splits his army into two, sending Parmenio on the slower, easier route with a bit less than half the army. And and Alexander takes the more direct, better defended route with the rest. I think the implication is that Alexander takes the elite, those who can travel fastest and furthest. They were stymied for a time, even losing an initial engagement and falling into a trap set by Aerobarzanes, satrap of Persis, who commanded a large force of perhaps 4,500 infantry and 7,000 cavalry, though that number may have also been just, or 25,000 in total. Regardless, he was a pretty skilled and managed to lead Alexander into a trap. He had a little mountain pass where he set this trap. He, Regardless, he was a pretty skilled commander and managed to lead Alexander into a... to lead Alexander and Macedonians into a narrow mountain pass, which prevented the Macedonians from using their trick of opening ranks and allowing things to pass through them. And once they are in this pass... He rains boulders, arrows down upon them, and as they try to beat a discreet retreat, the rear guard comes up and it becomes a tangled mess, and Alexander is forced to leave his fallen behind, which was a huge disgrace in the Greek day. This stalemate persisted for nearly a month until Alexander captured a local shepherd who revealed a mountain pass to the Macedonians. Alexander left Craterus with a small force behind at the base camp, and they were to light a bunch of fires and be as loud as possible to convince the Persians that the whole Macedonian army was still encamped there. While, meanwhile, Alexander leads a force overnight in terrible, dangerous terrain to flank the Persians. After a brief rest for the morning, they attack, and Traderus seals the Persians in from the other side. The Persian forces were routed once they were driven to tread combat, and Aerobarzines 
definitely not how you pronounce that, sorry my dude, uh, fell in battle a short while later. It's not that battle, it's confusing. Again, we see his Alexander's creativity and luck on display, as well as his ability to move his troops quickly and quietly in difficult terrain, another testament to their discipline and their faith in their king. Which at this point he had won three major battles over the Persians, unconquerable city, and another sixth siege, so it made sense at this point. The pursuit of Darius would eventually end in his death with a twist. And Alexander would find himself king of Macedon, Archon of Thessaly, head of the Greek alliance, and great king of Persia. Though this would prove not enough for him, and he would continue east into the distant Persian satrapies of Etbatana, Batria, Sadiana, and eventually into what our ancient sources call India. The Greeks and the Salian cavalry were sent back following this, the defeat of Darius. More detail on that later, but the mercenaries, Macedonians, and the newly conquered Asian allies joined the fold. Alexander was in a unique position at this point. He had nearly endless reserves of money and could more or less do whatever he wanted until he suffered a major defeat. Again, more in-depth coverage of all this to come, but by 329 BCE, Alexander encountered more than even the most optimistic sycophant could have guessed, winning battle after battle and occupying every major Persian city. And he had overrun the Persian Empire even burning the Persian capital of Persepolis and avenging the burning of Athens centuries earlier. The next set of operations would be smaller, which means they're largely, they're more, which means they're more neglected by our ancient sources, but it is useful for our purposes as it demonstrates that Alexander definitively was not the product of Philip or Permenio, who had met his demise by this time. He would split his forces into several independent units often during this frame because they're dealing in areas where this large army was difficult to keep supplied and also wasn't terribly useful against what in effect become a series of guerrilla battles. There are no notable set piece battles in this time until he gets to India because he's attempting to bring best pretender to the Persian throne and killer of Darius III to justice. We also get some grueling marches through mountains at this juncture and harrowing march across a desert. More on this in the episode where we analyze the leadership aspects of Alexander. But eventually, Bessus is defeated, and Alexander nets deals with Spitamenes, who was one of the more skillful, persistent, and pugnacious of Alexander's foes. Spitamenes was one of Bessus' supporters in his plot to kill Darius and claim the throne, but eventually just ha- like hands him over to Alexander. And then for some reason, unclear, Spitamenes, maybe he planned to do it all the time. Maybe he became disillusioned when it became clear the Macedonians weren't leaving. He encourages revolt and launches countless guerrilla-style raids against Alexander. And during one, and during like one matrish battle at this time, Alexander's hit in the leg by an arrow and apparently chips a bone. And a bunch of the local communities flock to the cause of Spitamenes. And there are several sieges persecuted, which will be touched on slightly more detail next episode. But Spitamenes super skilled at guerrilla warfare, and this still leads to Alexander splitting his main force into five distinct groups in order to, you know, be more mobile and react to where these guerrilla attacks pop up and the insurgency pops up. And, you know, insurgency in what is today the Middle East, you know, interesting. Almost like... History is important to study and understand regions and localities and their history. 
Who'd have thought it? Anyway, Temenes would defeat a large force not led by Alexander, killing nearly all of them because they rode out to negotiate with the local leader, and there was some confusion about who was in command. Apparently, nearly all of the 2,000, including the leaders, were killed, so not a ton in that battle, but it does testify to Spitamenes' cleverness. Eventually, he was murdered, perhaps by his own wife, and she killed him because he loved her and was dragging her all over as he waged his little warfare. She was not super into it. Kills him, brings his head to Alexander. He's like, okay, cool. Now uh, get out of here. Despite this, that in the death of Spitamenes, insurgency continues to rage. Alexander is like, whatever, I'm over it, and continues progressing into India. Partially, I'm skipping over this because our sources are pretty confusing at this point until we get to India. The most famous of these non-major battles and non-major sieges that I want to talk about, it is a siege, but I think it fits here because it illustrates again his creativity, and that is the Siege of Saddian Rock. Set on high hills protected by walls and well supplied with food and water, Saddian Rock was considered unbreachable. Alexander gets his troops up there, you know, they're down below, they're like, hey, um... I picture basically the scene from Monty Python. He's like, hey, uh, you guys should surrender. And they're like, no. And what's more, we will not surrender because unless you and your men grow wings, there's no fucking contra in this rock, my dude. So what does Alexander do? He is like, hey, you know what we are? Fucking Macedonians. We're fucking mountain people. We have some experience with mountains, my dude. And so he canvasses his men. It's 300 volunteers who will be paid with a huge reward for successful completion of this mission, 270 of which survived the arduous journey under the cover of darkness, climbing up this mountain, and they appear behind the defenders, at which point, you know, some stories say they blow trumpets signaling the charge, some say they just wave some flags around and make a bunch of noise, but shot and dismayed at the sight the defenders surrender despite the fact that the 270 would have easily been killed had they tried to storm the gates and also that Alexander and his forces wouldn't have been able to make it up in time to reinforce them. So this brings us into the end of 327, an eventful year of lacking any set-piece battles. Alexander finally advances into India. He would fight the last battle of his career, the Battle of the Hydaspes. We're at the end for now. Long episode. We'll be talking about his siegecraft next episode, which will demonstrate some of his more impressive features as a commander, and his more major battles will also demonstrate other facets of his skills, as well as our final military episode, which will encompass all of that intangible stuff. I think this episode has allowed us to get a glimpse at what made Alexander such a skillful commander. He was audacious, he was determined, he was talented, he was innovative, and he was lucky. But that's all we have time for today. Be sure to tune in next week when we discuss Alexander the Besieger, an episode I am very excited for. As always, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. Plug the show to your friends, families, colleagues, enemies, rivals, anyone really. Use it to break a siege if you find me especially annoying. Could work. Who knows? But until next time, remember... Whoa, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. 
Say it again. Peace.